This episode of The Dairy Show is sponsored by Vitelli. Vitelli is a precision livestock company reshaping how cattle producers worldwide optimize their herds. Through Vitelli's integrated technology platform, generations of genetic gains can be made in just a few years. This allows producers to sustainably deliver more protein with fewer inputs, helping to ensure meat and milk are viable competitive food choices for future generations. From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting-edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back to The Dairy Show, everyone. My name is Katie Schmidt, and I am so excited to introduce you to this week's guest, Jared Burley from Muncie, Pennsylvania. So welcome to the podcast, Jared. Good morning. How are you doing? I am doing well. I am looking forward to hearing from you about your uh, dairy in Pennsylvania, about the cows that you're breeding, and uh, just getting to talk to you a little bit about what it's like on your side of the country. So I'm going to have you start, Jared, with introducing yourself a little bit, uh, sharing your background in agriculture and where you're at today. Sure. Well, I'll give you the, the Reader's Digest version. We're, we're milking 90 cows in central Pennsylvania. My wife, Marcia, and I, we met in college. We both grew up milking cows, and we, we were a couple of nerds on the dairy judging team that found each other. I, I, I didn't think there was a girl out there that liked cows as much as I did. So we had to kind of make that decision after we got married. We both grew up on dairy farms, and, okay, now, now where do we plant our flag? Where are we going to take this thing from here? And where I grew up in northeast Pennsylvania, there weren't there really weren't a lot of dairy farms left. My my dad had a fantastic herd of cows. It would have really been a neat herd to try to keep the torch burning and, and see what we could take from there. But there were you know, if, if dad had a milker pump breakdown or needed a piece of equipment, he was a couple hours waiting on a service call. There was just very little support for ag in the area. Where my wife grew up, there were farms all over the place. And, you know, there was a, a lot more of an ag infrastructure in place and, you know, implement dealers and stuff like that. There wasn't the, you know, I guess the, the focus on genetics in her family farm. So it was kind of like, do we try to keep dad's herd going or do we try to do our own thing? And that's kind of what we decided to do. And, and looking back, that was, I, I'm glad we did it that way. Because if, if I had just kind of taken the keys to dad's herd, in, in the back of my mind, I would have always wondered, could we have done it on our own, you know, or did we just have this thing handed to us? And you'd have been the, you'd have been that kid that just, you know, oh, dad gave him everything, and he, they, they, just, good thing they had their dad, or they wouldn't have been able to breed anything on their own, you know. So, so we got to figure out if we could do it, and so far it's been going all right. And, and then I do dairy nutrition work between milkings. That's when, when most farmers get done in the morning and head to the fields, I get done and jump in the truck and go out and see a bunch of other farmers till the next chore session rolls around. And doing that kind of allowed me the chance to find diamonds in the rough out in the countryside. A lot of Amish cows that just needed a hoof trimming and a coat of paint and a belly full of feed to become what they could become, you know. And so I started finding these cows and gathering them up and putting them with our kind of core group. And it was a way to, to 
you got your BAA up higher without a massive cash outlay. You weren't going to these big sales, paying huge money. You were finding $1,200 cows in the middle of nowhere. And they didn't have the big pedigrees, but they looked fantastic and they were from the right sire stacks. So that was kind of the core to, to get us started. Uh, that was up until about 07, we, we, built the, we built our barn in 07 went from 50 cows up to the 90 cows we're milking today. Before, the, before that, we, we got married in 2002. Yeah, she graduated college in 02, and we got married about a month later. And That's kind of the, I, I, a very instrumental part to my story. Is I totally outkicked the coverage on when I found a wife. That was like, yeah, big time. And people ask, like, what your goals are and everything. I say, I'm not a goal guy. I'm, you know, goals are for wimps. You know, goals can be reached and then you get complacent. I'm, I, I like to have dreams. But the only time I ever really set a goal, I, I hit it last year. I said I wanted to get to June the 18th of 2021. Because the day I met my wife, I had lived 7,637 days. And as of last June 18th, I have now lived more days with my wife than I did without her. So it's kind of like it. you divide your life into these moments. And, that, you know, from, from here on out, she's, she's been saddled with me longer than she hasn't been. So <laughs> Right, and you with her. So that it works out then. I like that way of counting, though. Okay, I'm going to back up a little bit, Jared. You talked about the fact that you, your dad had these really nice cattle, and, but you picked to farm at your wife's farm because of infrastructure, which makes so much sense. But were you able to take any of those genetics from your home farm and bring them with you? Yeah, there was a, a, there was a Hanover Hill Skybuck daughter that was my graduation from high school present. And she ended up excellent. And we, we built a pretty good cow family around her. And there was a an old Astry daughter that was a 4-H project that, you know, ones that there were, there were four cows that kind of dad let me keep or that I, you know, one I had bought on my own with money from running around the country, clipping cows and stuff like that. So that was kind of our nucleus. And then naturally over time, you know, it was when your wife's birthday rolls around, it's really easy to go birthday shopping and dad's calf hutches. You know, you can get another cow family going that way. And, and the other thing, you know, my dad continued to milk cows up until 2018. So at, at one time there, I, there was, I, I was going through the list one time and there was us and there was a, a, a out, out in Wisconsin where the only father son herds the cows over 110 on a BAA at the same time. It was kind of neat. Makes it tricky at Christmas time. You know, you, you're when you're both, it's, it's hard enough to get someplace when you're milking cows, but when, when the rest of the family is too, you know, you, you just do your best. Yeah. You're working around two chore schedules and some distance there. You're, day job, we'll say, as a dairy nutritionist, your in-between chore job as a dairy nutritionist means you're traveling a lot. You're looking at cows. What does air culture look like in Pennsylvania? Uh, you mentioned the Amish and that there wasn't as much infrastructure in that north part of the state, but in general, like what, what type of air cultural products are you guys producing out there? Pennsylvania is interesting because you, you've got Philadelphia on one side, you got Pittsburgh on the other, and then you got Alabama down the center. That's kind of way, and we're right in the right dead center. You know, you got these two cities there, and, and people don't, when, you know, you, you mention Pennsylvania to people, they either really think Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, and they don't think of all of us guys, 
you know, in the middle part of the state. And you know, like my nutrition business, I, I, you talk about the scenery changing every day. I've got everything from 28 cow Amish guys to 400 cow freestalls, you know, and I know that's small in the grand scheme of things now, but you know, you got guys milking with robots. You've got guys milking with bucket milkers and no electricity. Uh, I have a really big Amish base and, you know, for the first, yeah, you know, I, I started doing nutrition when I was like 22 right out of college. And of course, you know, you get out of a truck with a clipboard, you might as well have a bullseye on your shirt when you're a new salesman in these places, you know. And But the, the thing that kind of got me, that bailed me out in the beginning was enough people knew my dad's herd of cows and I would introduce myself and say, hi, I'm Jared Burley. And they'd say, oh, are you Kevin's boy? And that was as good as making five stops because these guys would take you in the barn and show you cows. You know, you didn't, it didn't take as long to build up that that rapport with new customers because we had that common ground, you know, the, the Holstein cow. I mean, how many, how many relationships have started because of that? You know, it transcends all barriers, you know, but that was for, for a long time. My dad comes down every now and then and he, he'll, he'll ride with me during you know, like making nutrition calls. And he, he made the comment, he said, you know, up home, you're Jared. So when you're riding around at home, you're Kevin's boy. When I'm down here, I'm Jared's dad. It's, it's kind of neat when we, get into each other's neighborhoods, you know? Yeah, that is really, that's a fun change to to see happen, right? As a kid to be in both places and then have that relationship change or like the way people know you. Absolutely. How does it differ feeding Amish cows from what I'm going to call more commercial cows? Nothing really different. I mean, it's, I mean, the Amish are just like the rest of us. There's a couple of real superstars and there's a couple of real duds, you know, it's just kind of how it is. There's, there's guys that do a fantastic job. You know, they've, they've found a way to, you know, to, to manage around what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. They're pretty much all tie stall herds. That's the one thing. And, you know, it, uh, balancing a tie stall ration versus a, you know, a TMR and a freestyle ration is it's totally apples and oranges. It's actually, People don't think about it that way, but as far as ease from a nutritionist standpoint, a thousand cow one-shot TMR ration, it doesn't take very long to put it together with, you know, you get your forage samples and plug everything in and get the numbers to come out. But when you're balancing a tie stall ration and a guy's going around the barn with a grain cart every day and individually feeding, you're breaking out a ration for every 10 pounds of production on up the ladder. And, you know, this, this little 40 cow dairy you know, takes 10 times the amount of time sitting behind the computer as the big dairy does, but it's not that big, you know, it's, it's, it's just the way you manage it. And it's, it's what I grew up knowing. So it's, I'm a little more at at home with that, but yeah, that's kind of, there's a lot of differences from church to church too. You get like uh, one, one, one Valley, they're not allowed to use AI. So they, you know, I have a huge bull market in that Valley guys come buy their bull calves from us and, yeah, we, we have bull picking parties like every six weeks. I get a pile of Amishmen and a stack of pizzas in the truck and we go walking down through the center of the barn and I got my notebook. I'm like, hey, she's having a bull and she's having a bull. And these guys are picking out their bull calves before the calf's even on the ground. So that part's pretty cool. But then, then you get into other valleys where there's they're, uh, they have a phone but no voicemail. So if you need to get a hold of a guy, good luck. You know, they, they're like, oh, well, I'm usually at the phone at 8 o'clock in the morning. So if you need to call a guy, you're, you know, hammering on your phone and on the, on the off chance that some Amishman, you know, 
haphazardly wanders into a phone shed out in the middle of the bushes somewhere. But then you get you get to another church and they're pretty well not much different than us. You know, guys got cell phones and pipelines and a little bit of it, it, it takes all of us to make the world spin. Okay, we're going to move on from the Amish and feeding cows. Let's talk about your farm, Scarlet Summer Holsteins. You mentioned that your wife is also involved. You've got a new barn. What does the barn look like today? What are your facilities? We, we built the barn in 07. Up until then, we, you know, we, we had a 50-cow tie stall, and it was, it was an old barn, and, you know, that we, we were getting to the – the ventilation was horrific. And, you know, you just – on a hot day, you know, you were, you were throwing – extra fans and you know taking hoses around the barn and and I, I remember the day that it was like you know just saying no more we've got to do something we, we had 294 point cows at the time they're the two cows that are on our farm sign today and they were standing next to each other in the barn and one was laying down and one was standing and the other one wanted to lay down and as she laid down she banged into the other one and made her have to get up and I was like look at these two cows. I said, we've dreamed our whole life about having cows like these two. And here we have them in a barn where they can't even lay down at the same time because there's not enough room. And that was kind of the, the last aha moment where, you know, of course, naturally you're young and you're dragging your feet about, you know, you know what things cost, you know, and, and there's family dynamics and things like that too. But it's like, it's way better to jump two feet first into everything when you're 27 <laughs> and not wait until you're, 50 and, and you know it was you know things are expensive but I don't know anybody that built a barn and said yeah I should have waited five years it would have been cheaper you know what I mean That's, that always those costs always go up no matter what so that was uh, in 07 we built and we went from 50 cows up to there's 82 tie stalls and then at the end of the barn there is uh, 60 feet of box pens there's six box stalls and we kind of rotate cows through there People think your best cows are in the box stalls. That's not the case. Your your trouble is in the box stalls. Cows that are too dumb to get up and down in a stall that like to crawl over the curb. Or we'll have a, there's usually one box stall where you're skipping cows milkings to get them dry. And then another box stall where somebody's bagging up to have a calf. And then there's somebody on a show ration and somebody that's crampy. And there's usually the, the faces change in the box stalls quite often as to which cows are back there. We milk with eight automatic takeoff milkers. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's old. It's kind of like the most modern version of old school, I guess you'd say. It's, and for us, like, uh, I mean, I, I have n nothing at all against, you know, any other type of setup. But as far as promoting your genetics and showing your cows to prospective buyers, there's still no better way than to just go on down through the tie stall barn the cows are all lined up right there and you don't, you don't have to, you know, get everybody in the, you know, if you're going out into a freestyle looking for, you know, the, the cow that you want to show somebody, you know, first of all, you got to find her and we all got to get, you know, let's get our muck boots on up to our hips here and <laughs> go on out and make sure that we don't get, you know, splattered along the way. And so I know that's paint with a broad brush kind of, but, but that's kind of how we decided to stay with what we knew, but just make a better version of it. Our, our stalls are really big. There's 48 of the stalls are five feet wide. Uh, all the stalls are six feet long. The, the tie rail's 52 inches off the ground. It's, there's a lot of places, or there's, we have a lot of cows that we own, and the, the story of how they came to be with us is they were too darn big to live anywhere else. 
I, I'll get that phone call about once a year. Like, hey, I've got this cow that's just too big for us. We wondered if you'd be interested in her. <laughs> so I was doing some research before we hit record on this episode here, Jared, and I was noticing some really impressive red cows that are in your barn at home. Can you tell us about those girls? Sure. Uh, well, that's well. I mean, Scarlet Summer. My wife loves summertime, and I love red cows. So Scarlet Summer is how the herd prefix came along. And right now there's, there's 11 94 point cows in the barn. Three of those 94 point cows are red and white. And two of those 94 point red cows are like the, how I, I tell everybody, they're, they're the reason that we have like clothes and food and stuff. They've basically when milk price was at its lowest and the times have been the most dire and bleak, those two red cows what they have done is far beyond anything any of us would have ever imagined or felt we deserve. Uh, one of them's Martini. That's she's and she's the one we bred. She's a barbed wire daughter, and she's the the record milk holder right now with sixty nine thousand pounds of milk for for a red and white cow. And the funny story with her, I was doing nutrition work for a herd north of us, and we went to their dispersal, and we bought three cows at their dispersal. And one of those was Martini's granddam. And she was a Durham that sold pregnant to Rampage. And she was carrying a heifer calf. So Martini's, Martini's dam came in dam from a purchase of one of my nutrition customers. And we bred that Rampage to the barbed wire. And that's where Martini came from. And she had made, made 57,000 pounds with her four-year-old lactation and Another one of my customers was reading the Holstein International the following year. She had calved in again and had a couple tests over 200 pounds. And, and I kind of got thinking, man, I don't know if a red cow's ever made 60,000. So I started asking around to folks I thought might know. And, you know, and nobody could find one. I'm like, man, maybe we'll have the first one. Then this Holstein International article came out. And a, a, one of my customers thought that, hey, I saw your red cow in the, in the Holstein International for for the highest milk record in the world. And I'm like, man, how'd they know her, her lactation's only like half over? Well, then we looked it up and well, here it was the previous lactation of 57,000. She was already the world record milk cow and I didn't even know it. So here I'm wishing upon a star that maybe we could have this magical accomplishment that we already had and we were too dumb to even know that we had it. <laughs> so, so she goes on and crushed her own record by 12,000 pounds. So, and you know, the, naturally we started flushing her and trying to get daughters on the ground from this girl. And then in 2018, the Rockland sale in upstate New York came along and I saw a 94 point red and white daughter of Talent Barbara selling. Now, give you the back of that story. Talent Barbara to me, I, I divide my breeding career into two distinct portions. The time before I saw Barbara and the time after I saw Barbara. I saw her in a fitting shoot at a show. And I just that right there. I said, that's what I want to make every time I saw out a straw of semen. That's what I want the results to be. That I never saw a cow that strong and I never saw a cow that pretty. And it was at the exact same time. Usually the big strong cows need to be they have to have to have their bone cleaned up a little bit. Or usually those ultra, ultra dairy cows that are super thin, hided and flat boned, you'd like to give them a little more substance, a little more expansion of forib, a little more width of chest. Not Barbara. She was 
as pretty and flat, but you, you could watch blood run through her veins. And you know, when you're clipping cows, you know, you, you got your one hand clipping and the other free hand kind of pulling hide and, you know, trying to keep everything smooth so you don't get any nicks or cuts. Well, when they clipped Barbara, they took a handful of hide down on her hocks. Well, how many cows are loose hided enough and pliable enough in their skin that you can just get a handful of hide down on her hock and just pull it tight and keep clipping and that level of refinement and, and femininity, but you could still just, you know, you could put a, put a fist up each nostril and, you know, run a 200 pound hog between her front legs. You know, she had that width and she had that mass. So that, I kind of left that show on a mission that I, I've got to get some Barbara genetics and I, I, that's why I started using barbed wire. And then not long after that, I bought a Lothority daughter, an own daughter of Talent Barbara. Her name was Bayou. She ended up 94, made 61,000, was a fantastic cow. Her story ended earlier than it needed to. On her fourth calving, she had a cervical tear and we, we weren't able to get her back. But there was a brief moment there where when I saw this red and white daughter of Barbara at the Rockland sale, and here I had the 94 point daughter of Barbara in the barn, and I'm like, we got to do a little family reunion here. So I'm, I got to go, go buy the red sister to this one. So it's, that's what we did. We bought, we bought Brilliant and brought her home. And there was about a year where we had the two sisters there. And it was, it was kind of cool because at that time, Barbara had three 94-point daughters in the world. One was in Switzerland and two were at my house. That was pretty neat. And she, she finished up that lactation when we bought her. And then she calved in. And she made 53000 that year. And you're on this fence where you have this massive embryo demand. And you're like, do I risk having this cow in? Because I could keep her dry and flush her till the Lord comes back and just keep making embryos. Like, you know, the only thing that's going to stop her embryo demand is her falling over dead. And the, the biggest way to make them do that is to let them have a baby when they're really, really old. But my dad said one time, and I believe that he sometimes you got to just let a cow be a cow. And I was like, I'm not going to just keep this cow dry her entire life. And we're, we bred her back one more time. And boy, we're glad we did. She just, she's an easy keeper and she just eats like a monster. And she just never looked back, calved in without incident. And the, and she, she became the second red and white cow to, to make over 60,000 pounds. She had 65,000 last year. And these high production cows are something else. Before I get into that, was, we, we had, there was a, a small bull stud. They were in looking at Brilliant and she was just maybe she had to have one more lack or one more test on her lactation to be officially over 60,000. And I was telling these guys like, yeah, when she makes it, she'll, she'll only be the second cow that ever second red cow to make it. And I'm like, Oh, wow. That's kind of neat. Now who's the other one? And I was like, well, that one over there. <laughs> yeah. That kind of dawned on you then is like, there's only two in the world that ever did it. And I got lucky enough that they wandered into my life and they're, you know, right there side by side in neighboring box stalls. But that gets back to, there's a lot of luck involved, but I, luck is kind of like the intersection of opportunity and ambition. You know what I mean? These cows, they were capable of that level of production. And I tell people this all the time. There are so many cows in the country that I think have the ability to produce at that level. And they're either never identified or they're never supported. You know, it, 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 it's, yeah, it's an impressive thing, but it's, it doesn't just happen. 
the first cow we ever had make 200 pounds per day on test. One month later, when the tester came back, she was down to 128. She'd run out of gas. She'd, she'd, she'd burned all the fat off her back. We were still kind of, you know, I, I didn't, it, it was a, basically like a guy jumping into an Indy car for the first time. You got all this machine here, but you don't know how to drive it. And that's the way this cow was. I had this high performance machine, but I was a rookie and I didn't know how to run it. And I, I couldn't keep her production where it was. But I learned more from that cow than I probably learned from any other cow. I really started to focus on making sure that they're pulling the energy out of the manger and not necessarily off their back. And at that, the, the palm fats were starting to get introduced into the industry a little more mainstream at that time. And that they were a game changer. There, there were a lot of products out there that, you know, like Megalac and stuff that they were great energy products, but they weren't palatable. Cows hated to eat them. It, it doesn't matter how good they are if they lay there in the manger. So the, the palm fats were palatable. The cows could eat them. And it really supported that high-level production. And the other thing we did, what like uh, B vitamins all the time. The main thing with like Martini, I didn't do this with Brilliant. She didn't need it. And plus, she's a little more spirited than Martini is. If she's 84 points, she's a dirty old witch. If she's 94 points, she's got spirit. You know, that's kind of the difference there. So we would give Martini bicarb boluses every day. Because really, to, to to support the level of to, – to eat the amount of grain and forage it takes to make that amount of milk, the amount of buffer that you need in a stomach to keep it going, if you were to just mix that amount of buffer into a cow's ration, there again, you could run into palatability issues. So we would just take a 50-pound bag of bicarb, buy a pack of empty boluses at the farm store, fill them up. You know, and if you ever need to get a bunch of bo bicarb boluses filled up really fast, you just – give each kid a box of empty boluses and first one to fill the box gets 10 bucks and off you go. But Martini was a cow where, you know, you walked up through with the pill gun, she'd open wide, one big gulp. Thanks, Jared. Back to eating. You know, she was just so friendly about it. It was no issue at all to do that. So that's part of why I think we we're able to help, you know, support her level of production for as long as it did. So, and, and, you know, brilliant was, she's, just a little more, a little more high geared, you know, as far as just, she's just so aggressive about the way she eats. And, you know, with, whenever the phone rings for embryos, nine out of 10 times, it's for one of those two cats. I can see why. Because you're doing embryo work and because you're working on, on these genetic pieces in the herd, but you're still maintaining a smaller herd. I think one of the troubles that people run into is how you manage recips and getting those calves on the ground, right? while still having calves out of the young heifers that you're interested in. How do you manage that very fine balance or fine line? Well, here's, here's where we get to talk about the Amish folks again. Yeah, your recips is like this. Yeah, if, if I ever find a genie in a bottle, I'm going to have thousands of heifers and you know, lots of places to put embryos. But anyway, you run into a point where you, you use your own cows for as long as you can. But then you get to a point where every single heifer out in the heifer barn was an embryo. Well, you kind of want to breed them because that was kind of the whole point. But then again, we, we do still put a lot of embryos into animals that were an embryo because she doesn't have an udder yet. And one, I, I said this a long time ago, and I, I think it was more of a, it was more prophetic than I meant to be. But I said, 
having in with a good udder earns you the right to be bred on your own. You know what I mean? Because the udder is 40% of the scorecard. And until you show me that you've got a good one, why do I want to breed you? So and until then, you're more valuable to me as a rental womb to put somebody else's embryo in there because the odds are that as good, even if it's one of the best heifers on the barn, she can't lay down and have a calf for me that's as valuable as a calf out of Brilliant or Martini or one of the hazel branches or something like that. So we do still tend to use a lot of our own heifers for recips, and then we worry about flushing them after that once they've scored well. And that's another that we try not to flush anything until it has scored excellent. There are some exceptions to the rule. You get to, just in case you'd have that horrible luck where you, you have a, a nice two-year-old and you flush her, you know, she cabs in and you lose her the second time around. Well, now the pedigree's broken. There's nothing worse than saying, oh, she's from seven generations of very good or excellent. Ah, I hate that. Throw that word very good in there. So we do tend to wait to spend the money on the cows that are already excellent. But what I've gone to do in here in the last two years or so, there are a lot of local farmers, and just in our area, the lo local farmers happen to be Amish. They've gone to breeding a lot of Angus in their herd. They're using sex semen on the heifers. They're using Angus on the older cows and trying to keep their numbers down that way. Well, I went around to a bunch of guys and said, all these cows that you're breeding to Angus, let me put an embryo in them, and I'll give you 100 bucks over the average of what the Angus crosses are bringing at the sale barn. And that's what we've been doing. So, you know, these, these Angus crosses are bringing 275 to 300. The last group of calves, 400 bucks a calf, and there's guys out there I know paying a lot more for getting live calves at recent places, so they're probably going to be ready to jump through the phone to say, this guy in Pennsylvania is like paying 400 bucks for recent. But you know, it, it is a hassle because I'm the one running around putting cedars in all these animals, and a lot of them, you know, they haven't ever seen a human being that's not wearing a straw hat, and they put their tail in the air and run away from you about mock six. Get to wrestle with all these critters, and it's hard, you know, it, all the other expenses naturally you know we're paying to put the eggs in and so these guys are getting a pregnant animal they're they're not buying semen they're not buying cedars lutelice you know they don't have an, an ai technician fee or anything like that and then when the calf's born I'm, I'm like a little fairy i flutter in in the night and scoop up my calf and throw it in the truck and off i go like frozen colostrum that we you know older cows have good quality colostrum we freeze as much as we can and then we'll have that on hand at the farms where the calves are being born in case they're born at a time where I can't quite get there immediately. And then you got all your, your tri-shield, your first defense, your, your enforced vaccines, all those. I have them scattered all over the countryside for guys to give the newborn calves. And so it, it takes, it, there's a lot of, you're connecting a lot of dots, but when you're driving home with a little red and white calf riding shotgun next to you, it's worth it's a it. good day that yeah it's labor intensive though for you for that's the trade-off of a cheaper rental womb as you put it yeah well and, and your show months june december september march you know it's like you might as well not even try to plan anything because like that first week of december you know you, you might be thinking you're wrapping up chores and you're beat and you're like man i can't wait to just get a shower and collapse immediately and the phone rings and it's the Amish neighbor 12 miles away says, Hey, I got two feet sticking out. And they're like, all right, <laughs> I'll be right there. Yeah. <laughs> Joke's on you. So Jared, 
what you're doing is a little, I think, maybe unique compared to other people that we've had on this podcast. So this has been such a treat for me, and hopefully listeners feel the same way. But it's also why I want to ask if you have any advice that you want to share with young people who might be looking at doing what you're doing with this smaller herd focused on milk production and still type and and doing this combination of dairying while still off-farm jobbing and, and all of these pieces of what we've talked about today. Yeah, I mean... It's hard to it's hard to give advice because everybody's so different. You know, you take the, they say what's what's the average person? Well, the average person the, well, the definition of average is something that nobody thinks they are, right? Nobody thinks they're an average person, but it's basically you know it's a, 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 the world is a, a bunch of geniuses and a bunch of morons. You add them up and divide by two, and you got average. <laughs> and you've got people that are on, you know you got to have reasonable goals too. And that's, you know, I look back in time, I would probably do things different a little bit. I, I, I got caught up in this circle of just thinking that every cow in the barn or every stall in the barn has to have an excellent cow in it. And yeah, it's fun. And it makes you going down through milk. And, and we, we do have right close to 60 excellent cows in the barn, but would I have been further ahead to have two ninety-five point cows and 60 warm bodies to put the eggs in? Probably. They would, you know, from a marketing standpoint, and then, you know, you get with what we're doing now, every time you lose a cow, it's a heartbreaker because they, they all mean so much to you at this point, you know, and like, or, or like we, we just classified and, you, you know, people will see that, oh, you had eight new excellence, you had 50, so now you got 58, right? I'm like, uh, not quite. <laughs> oh, what happened? I'm like, well, the same thing that happened to your farm, you know, just the odds are that when stuff gets on a truck or gets buried, the odds are she was probably excellent, you know, so it's, it's hard to, it's harder to stay at the top of a mountain than it is to climb the mountain. You know what I mean? It, that's why I just, rather than try to stay on top of the mountain, I try to just keep finding bigger mountains. That way I can keep climbing. <laughs> but for like, A way to stay ambitious though. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like for, for younger people, you gotta be realistic. And a lot of that is just, you know, it's easy for me to say with 20 years of hindsight, some of those lessons, you, you know, it's, it's, you got to just go out and learn, you know, you can't, it's, it's like when you're sitting there at graduation, listening to the commencement address, you know, of course he's got good advice, but none of it means anything to those wide eyed graduates sitting there. They have to go out and make a mistake or they're, you know, nobody was sitting there at the commencement address going, yeah, my life was a mess until I, yeah, I was a real, you know, I was a real turd, but I really turned it around when I heard that commencement address, you know? But that's kind of the way way farming is, you know. You learn more from one mistake than you learn from doing a thousand things correctly. And you look at the the change in the business right now, too. I mean, we're so – we have so little control over so many huge factors as to whether or not we make a living or not, whether it's feed price, milk price, weather, you know, all that's out of our hands. So that, that's the main thing I said about genetics, whether milk price is high or low, whether we're in a drought or whether we're in a flood, I can go to the semen tank and thaw up the right bull to breed a cow, no matter what. They can't touch that. They, they can't take that from me. That, that the ability to do that is something that is always going to be there regardless of what's going on in the industry. So I said that that's something I can control and you can control your milking procedures to make sure your cell count stays low. 
you know, you can control your hoof trimming program. You know, if you can, you know, do the most diligent job you possibly can do with the things that are in your hands, the rest of the stuff will pretty much fall where it will. And I always, you know, I, I say to a lot of guys, if, yeah, if it ends up that we didn't make it in the dairy business, I can handle that because that's going to mean everybody else didn't make it either. One last question before we tie this all together. You mentioned at the beginning that you're less of a goals person and more of a dreams kind of person. So I want to end on knowing what is the the next dream for Scarlet Summer Holsteins? I mean, I, I always tell my son, we're, we're going to have everything here exactly the way I ever wanted it just in time for me to die. And you get to just grab it and go go forward from there. <laughs> but But really isn't that pretty much what all of us want to do. And we, we, we want to, you know, you like, just, we, we just we put headlocks in our heifer barn just recently. We had a long tie, a, a long head, like a neck rail. And we spent 10 years doing herd checks where you run the heifers behind the gate one at a time. And it's like an Olympic event. And, you know, you invent a few new cuss words till the day's over, but we got herd check done. Well, here we did the last one for the first time. And it sounds so simple. Something like, Hey, we have headlocks now. And we went down through and did a herd check and it was fantastic. And you don't think about that stuff when you're young, you know, you think about what the, you know, the, the next building you want to build and the next, you know, you want to make things easier and kind of streamline the labor so that, you know, the, you never know who's going to be involved with the farm and you want to keep as, as well, my son goes to college and my wife and I get older <laughs> and we want to be able to make things easier that we can do stuff. And, from the cow side of it, every time, you know, it, it, that, that part seems to, to go. Okay. I, I, I don't want to sound, I don't know how that comes off, but it's like when, when we hit 20 excellence, it's like, let's hit 30 and then we hit 30 and let's hit 40. And well, now it's like when you add the Brown Swiss, there's, there's 60 of them. And well, we're kind of, but you know, you, you, we kind of can't really have more excellent cows than we do. Cause you got to have two year olds to keep kind of coming up through the ranks. So, I mean, that, and you know, there's the, there's the cliched answers of golly gee, I'd like to breed a bunch of all Americans. And yeah, we all want to do that. I'd like to get the BAA, whether I, a number, I don't know. I don't know that I have a certain number in mind, but I, I, I guess I'd like to get to the top of that list. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're third in the country for our herd size and, trying to, to get to the top of that hill. And I remember walking into the Rockland sale and thinking that was the best herd of cows I'd ever looked at in my life. And at that time, that BAA was 114.4. So the number in my mind was always, if we could get to 114.5, then our BAA will have surpassed the herd that, that I felt to be the best I ever looked at. So I guess that's kind of a carrot that's dangling out in front of us a little bit that I you know, mindlessly racing towards, but that is an incredible group of cows though to have a BA of 114.4. Wow. It is. It was amazing. I mean, it was like one after the other at that sale. It was just, and I, I've got uh, Mike Garrow. That was who owned that herd. I've gotten to know Mike a little bit since I bought a couple cows at his sale and you see him at other sales and it's, it's, it's neat to, that's the, you know, in this business, where are there people or what, what other business is there where, you can see people so infrequently, but still consider them to be a great friend. You know, I, I have like that. I, I read pedigrees at a lot of sales and there are people that I only see at those sales three, four times a year. 
and they're people like if you know if you were getting married you'd invite them to the wedding you know they're that kind of friend you know and but they they milk cows too and they can't just up and leave and come visit all the time and so that's that's I always thought a neat thing about farming you got people that work a nine to five and see people day after day every day that they don't have the intimate connection and feeling about their business as we have as dairymen with people that live across the country that we maybe only get to see at the World Dairy Expo or maybe only get to see at the All-American Dairy Show. It's a powerful, powerful business to be in. Yeah, I think that's what one of the things that makes Expo so special, right, is that it is that one time a year people see each other. But yeah, it's that shared passion of dairy. But Jared, I, man, I could probably ask you questions the rest of the day and I would still be learning and laughing. (laughs) And so I have to say, thank you so much for taking the time, for talking with us, for being on the show and good luck with the cows at home. And hopefully we'll see you in a couple months at Expo. Yeah, we'll do our best. That's, I got to figure out how to get out there. The last couple of years, my son goes out and works for other people and, and I stay home. And, but we're going to short straw there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, there's so many farmers that, that never leave the farm. And they, they wear it like this badge of honor. They're like, yeah, I haven't missed a milking in 30 years. And like, hey, congratulations, you hermit, you know. And I don't want to be like that, you know. But, but we're, we're just finally kind of reaching that stage where our son's 18, our daughter's 15. And in the next couple of years, I think we're going to, you know, finally have the, you know, the people to be able to run the, the ship at home so my wife and I can get to do a couple of those kind of things. So maybe we'll get to see you in person out there. Good. Well, I hope so. And uh, yeah, thank you again so much, Jared, and take care. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We want to thank our episode sponsor, Vitelli, one more time. Visit vitelli.com to accelerate your genetics with hormone-free in vitro fertilization by signing up your donors for an ovum pickup. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you. 